Welcome to the podcast. My name is David. Let's save the world. This is going to be a fun episode because we're talking about urban legends. That's right. From the ancient folklore to the friend of a friend campfire stories like the vanishing hitchhiker and the serial killer with a hook for a hand to even recent creepypasta that some believe have come to life. These are stories that have influenced our culture and certainly influenced our horror movies. And we're going to get deep into that in just a little bit with the author of Film, Folklore, and Urban Legends, Dr. Michael Coven. But first, Into the Dark is Blumhouse's monthly (laughs) anthology series on Hulu. And the latest episode is Puka Lives. Yes. Joining me, joining me to talk about it is one of the stars who has to face off against that cute but deadly killer is the even cuter and even deadlier Laurel Topol. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. You know, I've been in quarantine, but I am making things work for me. Thank you for having me. I I think it's awesome that you're, you know, creating content during this rough time we're in where everyone's in quarantine and all. So I'm really excited to get started. (laughs) It's it's either be bored and stare at your walls or listen to you. And let's be honest, (laughs) you're right up there. You're right up there. Thank you. Thank you so much. So this is going to be, this project, uh, Puka Lives, is going to be the first time a lot of people have heard of you. So give us some background on where you come from, how you got into the industry, and kind of what you've done before this. Okay, so I kind of started acting in sixth grade, but it was only like stage acting. So I got more and more interested in it. I was playing five sports at once because I grew up in a very athletic family. So I was trying to balance starting my theater life and playing soccer and volleyball and all of that. Eventually, I decided that acting was what I wanted to pursue and dedicate my time to. So eventually, I went to Texas State University, got my BFA in acting there along with 10 other people in uh, my class. After that, I moved to Los Angeles to fully pursue it. And I eventually got an agent and started pursuing TV and film more. So I've done student films, indie films, all that stuff. So this was my first, I guess, big movie with such a well-known production company. So this was very, very exciting for me. And I was just really lucky to get this audition, you know? I don't think luck had anything to do with it. Um, (laughs) So you're right, though. Blumhouse is synonymous with horror at this point. I mean, they're a big, big deal. No pressure at all, I'm sure. Um, Oh, my gosh. So (laughs) I know. How did that go from... uh, you know, indie films, student films to, hey, I'm in front of Blumhouse and, oh, now I'm in front of the cameras. Uh, how, how did that go? Well, you know, I, I first Good agent. got, yes, yes, a wonderful agent. Um, 
Nick has been so helpful for me during this process of transitioning from only doing like theater, kind of transitioning to TV film and getting me auditions in Los Angeles. Since I'm new to this whole Los Angeles networking culture and all of that, he was just super, super excited to work with me. So I felt comfortable working with him and He's just been getting me auditions and eventually I got this role because through a chain of events, really, originally my agent sent me an audition for a March episode of Into the Dark and it was for the role of party girl. It was a one liner and uh, they asked me to do it three different ways. So I tried to make everything super specific and clear so each take was very different from the last it, it showed them new ways or new takes on this character i i sent that in i found out maybe a week later that they were really interested in me for that party girl part i i didn't hear back after that though a month or so goes by i get another audition from them but this time it was for puka 2 for the role of becky I worked really hard to figure out, first of all, what Puka was, who Puka was, because they did Puka 1 in their season one. So this was their first sequel. Originally, in one of the sides that I got, uh, they gave me a scene where I had to do the Puka dance with Lauren, and it's actually the bedroom scene right before I come yes, face to face yes, with yeah. Puka for the first time. Originally, I was supposed to do the whole puka dance with her, but in the final script, they cut that out. So I had to learn what the puka dance was. <laughs> and um, that was just really, really fun for me. I got to read the script for the first time. I sent them the audition and I found out I was pinned for the role. And then they sent me, or my agent called me while I was at Anime Expo, actually. And he said that I got the role and I was just like super excited, thrilled. I felt so freaking blessed, you know, that it just happened to work out that way. But it was just a series of events, really. So the, the point is you have to learn your dance moves if you're going to make it in Hollywood. Um, <laughs> exactly. I mean, Do she, your research. <laughs> yeah. Do your research on puka dances and you too can star in uh, big movies. Now, this one in particular, it, um, Alejandro Bruguez is the director, uh, Juan of the Dead, great film. He balances scares and fun really, really well. But I can see where it would be a little bit of a tightrope to walk. Did you work with him on what the tone was? Do I, not, you know, do I go too far scares or too far into comedy? Because uh, this this has got them both. Well, it, we had a table read, first of all. I didn't realize, because my scenes aren't necessarily... They have some comedy in it. Of course, she's a phone-obsessed teen. So there's some in there, but there's not a lot for my scene. So I had no idea, really, until reading the full script and seeing everyone's take on it. It was, you know, a nice mixture of comedy and horror, which is great. It's so fun. My personality already leans to the comedy side, and I've already done a bunch of 
horror stuff from student films and indie films. So I kind of got that vibe. Of course, like before every scene, he would just kind of talk with me about what he wants from my character, what the scene is, of course. Um, but yeah, that was pretty much how I kind of figured out what the tone of it was. But he was great to talk to. He was very welcoming, um, a great director, of course. And the cast was awesome. So that kind of just helped me figure out where I should take Becky. Yeah, well, this is unrelated to anything, but Becky better get off them dating apps. Um, <laughs> I know. Uh, oh, <laughs> I mean, my it, gosh. It's, it's only going to get you in trouble, Becky. Uh, <laughs> That's what I learned from this. Never, ever go on Tinder or any kind of dating site, <laughs> ever. <laughs> so you mentioned your prior work, and last night I saw Party Night. On oh, Tubi. my gosh. Party Night is available for free on Tubi. Uh, it is, uh, it's a low budget, um, but I had fun with it. Uh, you, you know, it, it's it's a fun little film, I thought. <laughs> and this is a your second slasher kind of film. So are you a fan of slashers or horror in general? Do you have a favorite? <laughs> I'm definitely a fan of doing them. I think they're probably the most fun to be... It's like the most fun experience to be an actor in a horror film because you get the blood, you get the action, you get the fun stereotypes for it as well. So it's always a fun experience acting in it. I wasn't a fan of horror until acting in Party Night, pretty much, because I really respected the genre after that. I had, to, I had prior experience watching horror films like watching Saw and The Crazies and The Mist, all of that. I, yeah, feel, I, good, feel good movies. I got yes. You. Oh, the ones that just make you sleep at night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. But, um, yeah, I was definitely, I, I'm a huge fan of watching horror films now. I just wish my friends were as interested in it because <laughs> they're all scaredy cats. I like watching Blumhouse films like Get Out and all of that. So, well, you need new friends, and uh, <laughs> I think that uh, LA is going to have a lot of uh, horror fans uh, that you're going to meet. So, uh, don't listen. Don't <laughs> at me, friends. Okay, uh, you're all great. Well, I'm sure. Uh, I'll tell so, them they're not. <laughs> uh, please, uh, yeah, you know that's fine. So, tell me about. What Puka is, I know we had the the first film, but uh, tell me what the concept this time is about how Puka returns. Okay, so Puka Lives is about pretty much a writer named Derek who is forced to go back to his hometown due to continuous harassment from trolls on the internet. And during that time, he reconnects with his old friends, and they decide to make a creepy pasta about the toy Puka for laughs. Once it goes viral on the internet, it manifests into an actual murderous version of the creature, and it's pretty much up to them to stop it. So the end, what we're saying here is, don't bully people. Uh, don't cyber bully anyone. Because oh, the only thing that can happen from it is mass murdering uh, stuffed animals. Uh, <laughs> so 
prior to this, or even since now, do you have any experience uh, reading creepy pasta? Do you know anything about like your Slender Man's and the story behind that? Or maybe uh, I know um, Momo is mentioned, which that's not necessarily a creepy pasta, but it's a a fictional character that everyone briefly thought was real. Um, yes. So, what's your experience there, if any? I was never a creepy pasta reader. I looked it up after, you know, I read the script for this movie and I I knew about Momo. It was all over Twitter and Instagram everywhere. Super creepy. I think my the only fear I have of like an urban legend is probably Bloody Mary. <laughs> yep. Bloody Mary has haunted my nightmares. I get so scared of turning the lights off in my bathroom because of the whole mirror. And I, I, I think about Bloody Mary and I'm like, if I think about her, will she come out? What, you know what I mean? So those are my, pretty much the only experience I have with urban legends in the sense of being scared of them. (laughs) I have a cure for you. Uh, You are, are you 23? Yes, I am. Yeah. yeah, okay. There's a drink. Uh, okay. <laughs> called Bloody okay. Mary. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> drink, drink a few of those. You won't be scared of anything. Uh, exactly. <laughs> That's so, a good idea. Uh, it, in general. Uh, I'm, again, joking. Uh, in moderation. So in this, puka is what they call a tulpa, which is something I did not know about before. Uh, but it's, the idea is that if enough people think about something, then it can manifest in reality. Now, Becky, kind of a skeptic on this nonsense. Yeah. What about Laurel? Uh, do you, uh, do you believe in that kind of, maybe not a, uh, maybe not a tulpa, but, uh, any supernatural phenomenon, that sort of thing, or are you as skeptical as Becky? Of course, I I believe in that stuff. I'm scared of paranormal activity. I'm scared of things haunting me. I have sleep paralysis every now and then, and I know it's technically not a demon. It's not supposed to be a demon that is haunting me, but it feels like it. <laughs> I've had some paranormal activity experiences not crazy like the actual movie paranormal activity i definitely believe there are (laughs) of course i'll tell you i was in my room i was laying on my bed watching tv i had it was pretty much three-fourths it was a can of coke i had a can of coke lying on a desk it was three-fourths of the way filled So it was heavy. There was no way it would have, you know, you would have to hit it for it to fall off this desk. It wasn't on the edge. It was kind of like in the middle of the desk. Anyway, I'm just watching TV. All of a sudden, it flies off the desk and a whole can of Coke is spilled on my white carpet. Aww. I know. So it, it, I was so it's sad. not only a ghost, it's a it's a rude ghost. What a jerk. I know. What the heck is up with that? Maybe he tripped, you know, maybe, maybe. he was just clumsy. Because I didn't have a, an experience really after that, of course. 
sometimes you wake up from sleep paralysis and your your mind is still in the dream state. So I would think I would see things in the dark. Yep. <laughs> but hopefully I, I'm not possessed. You know what I mean? <laughs> hopefully. Um, or, or actually, uh, technically, I can see you now in this interview. So uh, uh, if you're in there, please summon yourself now. Uh, I have, oh I sometimes have uh, sleep, uh, sleep paralysis as well. And frankly, I think it's kind of cool. Uh, <laughs> it is scary at the time, but I love horror movies. So once I wake up, I'm like, that was awesome. <laughs> I totally thought a monster was in the room choking me or something. And you survived it. If there yes. was a monster in your room, you survived. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, otherwise, the only unexplainable events I ever have in my life, uh, oddly enough, involve Bloody Marys. Um, so <laughs> oh, no. Uh, we'll go down that, that path later, uh, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, off of uh, microphones. Um, so in order to uh, summon, uh, and you said you had to do the dance. So in order to summon Puka, you do the Puka challenge. Yes. And so, you post it afterwards. You post you doing the challenge. <laughs> right. So obviously there's no Puka out there. Well, not that we know of. Oh, but, God. Hopefully not. <laughs> but we have cinnamon challenges. We have the Kiki challenge. We have the, oh, and she's already laughing. The, the <laughs> ice bucket challenge. Have Ooh. you, have you actually done any challenges where you weren't in a movie? And if you, if you have, where's the video of that? Oh my gosh. I did the cinnamon challenge with my friend, my best friend back at home. That was an experience. Experience. We posted it on YouTube, but it's either currently unlisted or deleted. It's definitely somewhere, though. <laughs> I just don't know if you will be able to watch it. <laughs> and listen, what's your friend's name? Morgan. Morgan. Yes. When she, when she wins an Oscar, I want you to release that video to the world. So that we can all remember the days when she was doing the cinnamon challenge before she was a big time actress. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so hook the world up, Morgan. Um, Please. <laughs> so, it's a fun one. Uh, yeah. yeah I, no, thanks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was going to die. Seriously, though. Like it was I wasn't expecting to choke that fast, I guess. I thought it would take a while. I thought people were overreacting, like it tasted bad. But really, it's just the saliva and the cinnamon together just make it so dry that it just expands in your throat. Ooh, not fun. <laughs> no cinnamon, no puka, no challenges. Get over no. it, internet. Um, Stop it. <laughs> so, uh... Puka's pretty cute, and I wish they would make some so I could put it in my room with all my other horror stuff. Uh, that would be rad. I would, I'm going to, if they ever do, I'm going to have you sign one. Um, <laughs> what was your favorite children's toy? Or is there a toy that scared you? I know you're really into video games, but, yeah. <laughs> but do you have a favorite or a favorite toy from when you were a kid? All I could think of is Tamagotchis. Tamagotchis were so fun <laughs> because you could connect with your friends 
and have their Tamagotchis come over to your place or to your Tamagotchi land. I don't, there wasn't much to do on it, but the fact that you had this little digital pet and you could feed it and it would poop and you had to clean that up, but they died so fast. I know. They were definitely, definitely my childhood. That was pretty much the only thing I can remember being like a toy that I legitimately like held on to and went to elementary school in hand with because everyone had it. <laughs> so, but uh, I know that you do uh, the video game play alongs now. Yes, yes, and, I do. <laughs> and that voice may sound familiar to some people. Yes. From from video games? (laughs) Yes. What's going on there? Yeah, so I'm also a voice actress, and a recent game came out called Grand Guilds. It's called Grand Guilds, and it recently came out for Nintendo Switch. It's a tactical RPG game, and I play the character Duchess Hertha. It was definitely a fun experience to do that. I I started voice acting actually when I was in Los Angeles, when I just moved out here and the opportunity kind of presented itself for me to take a class for voice acting for video games with Ray Chase. And I learned a lot and I bought my own equipment so I could do stuff remotely and yeah, it's been a great experience and definitely has opened up more opportunities to act for me in this industry. Cool. Uh, that, that's that's exciting. Yes. <laughs> so since it's opened up more opportunities, now you're a big time star. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> after you're going toe to toe with Puka, what do you have coming up that you can talk about? Coming up. Coming up, let me think about that one because coming up that I can talk about. I know I did another video game called Starflint. It was actually a French game and they're dubbing it for Americans to play so they can reach out to a bigger audience. But yeah, it's called Starflint. And I actually don't know when it's coming out, but I did the voice for, oh, there's a bunch of characters. Crystal, The Waitress, the tattoo artist and Trinity. So she is. (laughs) Oh, stop it. (laughs) I have one voice and it sounds stupid. Oh my gosh. Hey, your voice is very unique and that can get you. That's the thing. A lot of people think is that their voice isn't good enough to be a voice actor, but it's the, the uniqueness of your voice that makes you a good voice actor or what people are looking for, unique voices all around. So if anyone is interested in voice acting and thinks that they don't have a good enough voice, I definitely recommend trying it at least. See, my future is bright. My dad was wrong. Um, (laughs) So, I I mean, as far as uh, movies, anything like that you can talk about? Or I know I saw a couple of things on the IMDb, but I'm not sure if you can mention them too much. Oh, yeah. I know... There's a couple of friends of mine. They're just short film. I mean, just short films. They're short films that have. There's one that I did called Dog that is unlisted on YouTube right now. So I don't know if they're doing it, doing the film festival circuit or not. Another friend wanted me to do voiceover work for their short film. I think it's 
it's not a big cast or anything. I, I just call them and have a conversation with them. I've just kind of been making my own work. I'm in the process of making a feature film with my boyfriend, Ryan Love, and we've been kind of working on that and doing lens tests and stuff to see what we like and dislike. But yeah, that's pretty much what's in. There's kind of auditions, of course, are in the works for different TV shows um, during this quarantine time. There's only so much we can do. Right. <laughs> but if they, if they can cast girl at her house, then uh, I think you've got the. I think you've got it. Oh uh, yeah, no, I'm killing it right now. I got nunchucks. There was a bow staff that was supposed to come in the mail at some point, but never did. I don't know where it is. It's lost. But I'm learning a bunch of new skills now that hopefully I can apply to my acting career and the future. So the future is bright. For the record, I was kidding about the deadly part, but maybe I wasn't. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I know. I know. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Don't mess with her. Um, as far as that feature uh, that you're working on uh, with your boyfriend, which say his name is Ryan. Yes. Yeah. Right. That you're uh, you're doing. You're in the script. Or you're. I mean, like you're writing the script, or you're at the point where you're. Yeah. So we're on the second draft right now. He wrote the whole thing, came up with the idea. I'm essentially the script doctor, which pretty much means I edit as well as fix some scenes like sometimes he'll be like can you rewrite these scenes to to fit into one scene or whatever I take what I got from his script and pretty much rewrite that scene to make it work for the whole story then we talk about it so I'm kind of an advisor slash writer slash editor and and then I'm also going to be starring in it so <laughs> it's kind of a long process that we've been working on, but we're very excited to hopefully get funding for it and make it, you know? I have already forgotten the list of talents that you have that you just rattled off. Um, it's, you know, I, I landed on my head a lot as a child, so I, oh, uh, no. <laughs> I, I, I don't remember, but it's a quite a long list of editor and script doctor and all these other things. Um, so how could the future be anything but sparkling bright for you? Uh, I, <laughs> I'm really, I'm really, really, really excited uh, that I got to talk to you. I do have one more question for you. Of course. Uh, before I let you go. And that is Puka decides if you, he knows if you've been naughty or nice. And if you've been naughty, you're in trouble. Laurel, have you been naughty or nice? <laughs> I would like to say I'm always nice, but I have nunchucks, so <laughs> I'm going to say 75% naughty. Don't fight me. And then the other percent nice. <laughs> well, I managed to make it through this entire thing without getting hit in the head with nunchucks, so I'm going to say you're 100% nice. Thank you. Uh, for, jo for joining me here. Uh, I, I really, really appreciate it. I think you're a star in the making, and uh, I'm excited to uh, watch you grow into a big-time star. 
thank you so much. And thank you for having me. This was such a fun conversation. And I hope to talk to you again sometime in the future. Well, by then you'll be such a megastar that, uh, and Morgan will be releasing that, uh, cinnamon <laughs> challenge video. So, uh, Morgan did not think she was getting this many shout outs on the show. Uh, I know. Shout out to Morgan Shay, my best friend, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, that would be great. And I'll be in touch with you as well. Uh, you're, you're amazing. You're wonderful. I really, uh, I really appreciate you, uh, taking some time to talk with us. Oh, thank you. And thank you for having me. All right. Everybody go to Hulu and watch Into the Dark, Puka Lives. Now, urban legends have been a part of horror for a long time. Some of you may have seen the recent film Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Well, that's based on a book, right? And the book is based on urban legends. So Harold the Scarecrow and the Red Spot with the Spiders, that's all stuff from urban legends. So let's take a deep dive into urban legends. And with me to discuss that is senior lecturer in film studies at Worcester University and the author of film, folklore, and urban legends, Dr. Michael Coven. Thank you so much for being here. No, thank you for, for having me. I, I'm excited. I love urban legends. It is some of my earliest memories of being scared uh, are from urban legends. Um, I, I, guess, uh, I, I guess that might be part of the reason why they exist is to scare children. Uh, so let's get into this. Uh, give mm-hmm. me some background on uh, folklore and urban legends and, speaking of scaring children, the role they play in society. Oh gosh. Um, well, urban. There's so many contested names for this particular phenomena. Urban legend is just one of them. It's one I tend to use, um, not for academic accuracy, but because when talking to real people, um, it's the term that they're most familiar with. Um, and there have been a lot of academic debates of the kind of how many angels dance on the head of a pin kind of questions um, about not just what the name is, but what kind of story this is. Is this a new kind of story that emerged usually in the 1960s? It's identified um, with stories like the hook handed killer and the boyfriend's death, um, the spiders in the beehive hairdo. Um, these kinds of stories were some of the first recorded in, in quotation marks, in air quotes, uh, urban legends. And what academic, academic folklorists have been doing over the years is looking at whether or not these are in fact new stories or are they repackaged, repurposed older stories that, that um, have been brought into the modern age uh, with various changes in the um, um, the stuff in the story, you know, and instead of a, a horse-drawn carriage, it's a car kind of thing. Right, right. Let me give you a let me give you a quick example. It's not a particularly horrific one, but I do think it's a it's a nifty one. Is there's a very common, uh, well-known urban legend known as the um, suppressed invention story. I'm sure you've heard of of the fact that we do have the technology for a a car that runs simply on hydrogen off of sure. water, um, sure. but that the big automobile manufacturers are intentionally keeping this off the market, right? Right. We all know that story. Sure. Well, there's a story. I, I believe it's in in 
Pliny, uh, the elder or the younger, one of the Plinies, um, a story told, uh, I think, about the Emperor Augustus, one of the ancient Roman emperors. Basically, there was this day that he was inviting all the, um, the inventors in Rome to show what they've been working on. And this one fellow brings him a, a very plain looking vase. And the emperor says, OK, it's nice. It's a vase. I'm not sure what you want me to do with this. Uh, to which the inventor takes it back. He throws it on the ground, but it doesn't break. He says, see, what my real invention is, is unbreakable glass. So the emperor had him killed because if word got out of this, it would have destroyed the Roman glass market. Okay. So it's the same story that there are power interests who are intentionally keeping things off the market in order to protect the industry, not protect technology or, or, or the society. So here we have a very old story coming out from the, from the ancient Roman period. Um, but when we tell it about, about um, the big five car manufacturers wanting to keep um, uh, hydrogen-fueled uh, cars off the market or um, light bulbs that never burn out, these kinds of things. I've actually, my background is in music and just growing up as a kid, I always heard that certain singers would have a rib removed so they could perform certain yep. sexual they activities. Could self, they and self-felatiate. Yes. I like that phrase, self-felatiate. Uh, th there we go. And uh, you're much smarter than I am. Um, no. And the celebrity who supposedly did that changes with every trend, and I'm sure yep. there's one out there now that people are saying that. So it's uh, it's funny how um, almost kind of like – I mean not to get too into it, but uh, kind of a little bit like religion in that it's either going to change and adapt with society or it's not going to stick around very long because the people will no longer identify with it. Absolutely. And and um, you've hit the nail right on the head there. These stories persist because they are useful. They are they're stories a society or a culture needs. That doesn't necessarily have to be the big society like Western society or American society or Canadian or British society. It can be um, something as as banal as as um, I don't know, uh, the community in a particular school for example, or within a particular trade, uh, trade craft or something like that. Gotcha. So we deal a lot with horror movies here and it seems like horror movies and urban legends are a perfect fit. Uh, a lot of them, like I said, when I was growing up, uh, I would read them and get scared. Uh, there's one in particular that I love about, um, people can lick too. Oh it's, yes. It's one of it's, my favorites. It's so frightening because it's, it's, it's about uh, threatening children and animals, and those are two things no one wants to have hurt, and that that one just always scared me so much uh, growing up. So uh, they're like little uh, horror stories, um, yep. and uh, so what are some ways that it speaks to that audience, and uh, are there theories as to why – we're attracted to as a, as a little kid. I'm reading stories that are scaring the crap out of me. Why do we do this to ourselves? Oh gosh, that's a, you, there are lots of little questions in there. Um, why? To answer your the, the one you just asked, most um, referred to, why do we do this to ourselves? It's difficult to speculate, and I, I would suggest that different people like these stories for different reasons and get something different out of them. That being said. I think there's something about if you imagine we're all sitting around the campfire 
and what's illuminated is say six or seven feet of a circumference around us so so we're there with our friends or our family warm by the campfire we can see sort of a a, a six foot radius all around the campfire but beyond that radius is total blackness we don't know jason is out there in the woods, for example. Um, we don't know what lies in those darker regions beyond the campfire. And so on the one hand, yes, we are telling these stories to terrify ourselves and to terrify each other with what lies beyond uh, the safety of the campfire. But it's also reassuring that if we're telling the story, it means we're still safe. Yeah. Um, if, if you weren't safe, you wouldn't be telling the story. Right. So there's, there's this reassuring quality that, that, you know, um, yes, there are monsters out there, but for now we're safe in this huddled little group. Gotcha. Gotcha. So you, in your book, uh, film folklore and urban legends, you really kind of opened my eyes to a certain thing. And that's, uh, uh, the movie Halloween there's a thought in horror that if you you know if you have sex you're going to die and it all started with halloween da 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 and you kind of restructure that and i actually think that it's a a really interesting thing that it goes beyond just that and maybe some of those rip off movies just weren't thinking very deeply uh, so, uh, can you explain to the audience what, uh, your theory was really about? Hmm. Um, well, first of all, thank you for, for both the plug and, and your, your generous comments. My idea was if we look at Halloween, like an urban legend, um, by which what I mean is if we study the film in the same way that we study the oral tales or the printed stories. Um, there's a particular folklorist um, by the name of Daniel Barnes, who many, many years ago suggested a particular structure to these stories. The, um, uh, they, the, the structure is, is four particular points in the story. There's um, an interdiction. There's a warning not to do something. There's a violation of that interdiction. You do it. Um, then there are the consequences. What happens when you, you violate those, uh, that interdiction? And finally, and only in some cases, there is the attempted escape of people trying to get away in that regard. And Barnes was able to show that that particular structure of, of an urban legend um, occurs in a whole bunch of different stories. And I applied that to certain kinds of slasher films. Not all slasher films um, work with this pattern, but there were a number of them that do. In particular, as, as we're talking about it, um, Halloween seems to really function closely within that, that interdiction, violation, consequences, attempted escape overall structure. The problem is, as neatly as the film fits into it, uh, in, into that structure, the interdiction part, when you are told not to do something, the don't have sex rule doesn't work. It, it, it doesn't make any sense to introduce that because that's not what people are seemingly are being punished for. And in looking at the film itself and looking at the text and saying, you know, often the interdictions in these stories are 
um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, they're implicit. They're not explicit. You know, these stories don't start off with somebody saying, you know, there's a rule that, you know, blah, 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 blah. Here's why we have that rule. Some stories might have that, but, but by and large, they don't. We tend to be thrown into these stories in media res, you know, right into the middle of the story with the violation, even though we don't know what the, what interdiction is being violated. Um, so we're thrown in and we've got to kind of figure it out. What did we do wrong? What did we do wrong that this monster is now chasing us? Um, and the no sex rule, uh, didn't seem to work for me in, in that particular structure. So I was looking at the film and looking at the film text and the structure as to what could it be. And what I found was that the, the interdiction isn't about having sex as a teenager, because let's face it, we're all going to do that. It was actually about responsibility in babysitting, of all things. Um, and you sort of look at that, just treat that as a hypothesis for now. That, that hypothesis is there that Halloween is not about uh, fear of, of adolescent sexuality. Um, it's about the fear of not being responsible when you're babysitting. And suddenly it becomes almost laughable. It, it, it's, it's seemingly such an absurd premise to use. But then you look at the repercussions. And first of all, you look at it in terms of the text. Does the text support this particular interpretation, this particular reading? And when we look at who's killed, let's move the, the, the first murder of Judith Meyer off to, to, to one side for a second. The only time the babysitting girls or Bob uh, are at risk from Michael Myers is when they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, th that, that Annie, if she hadn't left um, uh, Lindsay with, with um, Lori, uh, you know, so she could go off and meet her boyfriend, everybody focuses on the, she's going off to meet her boyfriend to have sex. But actually what she's just done is abandon her duty. Um, and it becomes a different kind of, of story. It becomes a story where young people, I, I, I hate the word sort of children or teenagers or something, something like that, because it's, it's, a, it's a wide group that I'm talking about here from, say, 14 years of age or younger to 22, 23, or possibly even older. But in that, that demographic, who not coincidentally are the same demographic that are going to see films like Halloween, um, that that the responsibility, if you think about your responsibility as a babysitter, I mean, I'm assuming we've all done babysitting. It's a huge responsibility, particularly if the unthinkable happens and that's a psychotic madman comes calling, wanting to kill you. Do you have the resources? Are you smart enough? Are you mature enough? Are you capable of protecting not only yourself, but also the child or children that you are are looking after. And that as a very real kind of fear, even if an unspoken fear, nobody's at, at the age of 16, 17 is really afraid of sex. They're afraid maybe of, of being too young to have it or not getting any at all, but they're not really afraid of sex. They're afraid of responsibility. Um, and I noticed the same pattern around that idea of adolescent responsibility in a number of these 
urban legend-like slasher films. So it's there in The Burning, it's there in um, Friday the 13th, at least the first Friday the 13th, um, where everybody assumes that those murders are motivated by a kind of sexual uh, impetus. But but really it's about you're having sex, you're, you're pleasing yourselves, and you're not looking after the kids, which is what we're paying you to do. Got you. And that is, uh, like I said, I think in the book you were a little self-deprecating with it, but I, I that makes sense to me. Um, it, it sounds a lot uh, deeper psychologically than just the simple, you know, oh yeah, there's some kids and they want to, you know, go off and do stuff together. That, um, uh, that resonates with me because I think in that age range of high school and college where you're, am I an adult now? Do I have adult responsibilities? Oh, no. Uh, exactly. So, um, and, I mean, part of the problem is that uh, a remarkably successful film like Scream uh, really perpetuated, uh, I, I don't want to say the wrong beliefs because that's hugely presumptuous of me, um, but but it certainly perpetuated this this fallacy, this this misinformation that these films are all about, you know, don't have sex, don't do drugs, don't say I'll be right back. Um, I would need to go back over an awful lot of films, but I can't remember any film other than Scream where somebody says, I'll be right back. Right. Obviously, uh, horror movies are influenced by uh, urban legends. Give me some really good examples that people might know that uh, they might say, oh, that was an urban legend before. Oh, gosh. Um, well, most of my examples are, I'm afraid, fairly dated, mostly because they were the popular films when I was quite young and was hearing both the legends and aware of the films. I, I really need to get my acting gear and, and update some of my examples here. There's a film from 1978, and it was remade, I think, in 2008, called When a Stranger Calls. Um, the original is is, is um, much better than the, the horrible remake. Um, but this is all based on the legend of the babysitter and the man upstairs, where she gets these calls, have you checked the children? Um, she thinks it's a crank call, but they trace the call, and it turns out the call is coming from inside the house. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, that was one. There's uh, another great film I, I enjoy just because it's so wonderfully silly um, from 1980 called Alligator, which uses the alligator in the sewers story. Yep. And I actually, I thought that was true when I was a kid as well. <laughs> oh, you know what? At the time these movies came out and the time we're telling these stories, I thought they were true. I remember the, I'm, I'm sorry for using brand names on, on your show. Hopefully you won't get sued for this. But I remember a story about the um, bubble gum, bubble yum, um, that was just being introduced into Canada. It had been in the States for a couple of years by that point. What was delaying the release in Canada was that they had found spider's eggs uh in 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 bubble yum um and so yeah we we oh well we can never chew that kind of stuff you know we'll stay with the canadian bubblicious i think was our our equivalent so yeah absolutely believe these stories and in fact uh when i was a kid or when i was a teenager i worked at a candy store and we sold pop rocks and mm. almost every day someone said i can't believe you would sell these don't you know they killed mikey from life cereal and yeah, it's like yeah. Mike, mikey's still alive uh, he's uh he's like a grown man now uh, everything's fine uh but it's uh it's really strange how the word spreads and uh even if it's not true it 
gets around and a lot of people believe it. Uh, one of the uh, ones was um, my earlier guest, uh, Laurel Topol, uh, is in a movie called Puka Lives. And oh, yeah. uh, uh, she mentioned to me that she is afraid of, uh, or, of Bloody Mary. And mm-hmm. that is connected to Candyman, right? Yep. Yes, it is. Um, in, in, I talk about it in the in the book. Is is um, uh, the Bloody Mary legend, um, which is not something that I guess it mostly circulates amongst um, teen and preteen girls, uh, which is probably why I had not heard this particular story. You know, I heard about the urban legends when I first saw Candyman. Um, but as I became a folklorist and started studying these materials, I started seeing more and more, more levels, more resonances, more, more uh, things that were being explored in the film. Um, and this, this ritual of, of saying Bloody Mary three to five times in a mirror, holding a candle, um, you know, she'll, she'll appear uh, behind you or, or reach out of the mirror and scratch your face or something like that. In fact, uh, in your book, you mention that uh, there's a variant of the Bloody Mary legend where uh, she can uh, she appears blue and um, she's going to help you white and she'll leave you alone or red and you're in trouble. And yeah. I actually found that inter- interesting when I was watching Puka Lives to talk with Laurel. Um, he has a thing where if he's showing blue you're okay. And if it's red, he's going to kill you. Uh, so I was like, Oh wow. You know, a lot of things were influenced by urban legends and I didn't even know it. Now, now here's one of the, just, just to make this all really pragmatic is urban legends are free, right? Fairy tales are free. They're part of oral culture. Um, if I wanted to make a film based on Bloody Mary or The Hook-Handed Killer or The Babysitter and the Man Upstairs or Cinderella or Snow White um, or any fairy tale, it's part of oral tradition, which means so long as I don't directly copy Disney or another film, I can put this out as my own film, as my own story. And for screenwriters, I don't know why there isn't more of this material out there. Because it's free to use, you know, it's it's um, what do you call it? Public access material. Sure. So, all right, here we go. Uh, folklore in your book you mention is often based on the fear and anxieties of the time. You mentioned that earlier, um, kind of otherizing uh, the people that, who aren't like you or what have you. What are some examples? And I know you mentioned some in the book that. This has crept into movies. I know especially one thing that interested me was you I often think of science fiction and which is accurate that it leans to the left because you have things like, you know, Twilight Zone and Star Trek that have kind of forged that path of of left, you know, inclusion and sort of I guess what would be called left-wing thinking, but there's a conservative bent to a lot of this stuff. I disagree. Um I think there is uh, there is a conservative bent in some of it, but the stuff that really gets me um, and gets me interested because I am a self-proclaimed lefty liberal is is that horror films can often be deeply subversive. And often, while well, the surface may be a return to normalcy, a return to, um, oh, what's the great phrase, uh, 
patriarchal heteronormativity, you know, that, that, that this is the conservative way, this is the normal way, this is what we expect. By virtue of having gone across the challenges of that within the horror film, that actually enough of the ground has become unstable. Let alone when we get into films like um, the George Romero zombie films, which are completely apocalyptic. Oh, sure. Um, capitalist patriarchy will not come back together again uh, in the wake of, of Romero's zombie apocalypse or possibly COVID-19. Uh, th- that um, I was expecting a laugh there. You know, work with me. <laughs> um, okay. That there is – I find horror to be a deeply subversive genre. Um, and when I find something that is really conservative um, or at least doesn't seem to be as challenging or as radical or as subversive as it could have been, I'm usually pretty disappointed. And uh, I know we sort of in the emails we've been exchanging sort of this cropped up a, a couple of times. It's one of the problems I have with the movie Slenderman. Uh, it's one of the problems I have with the whole Conjuring and Annabelle and um, uh, Insidious cycle of films, uh, the Paranormal Activity films, is they all go back to a place of conformity and conservative values um, at the expense of the radical journey that's gone before. Um, And I, I do find them to be deeply, deeply conservative films. And you mentioned uh, a couple in the uh, in the book, uh, like like the swarm. Hey, if they if they have a political agenda, that's fine. But uh, that kind of hit me as wow, that's a messed up movie. If that's what they were going for, it's it seems pretty not only xenophobic but racist. Um, oh, absolutely, absolutely. In in doing that particular bit of research uh, that's that's in the book, and I was looking at the science behind the killer bee phenomena and and what it is. There's this is not something that I needed to go into some specialist journals, um, really obscure stuff in order to find out. This is part of you know any apiarist, any any um, beekeeper could tell you the exact same history that I was reading about. So it's not like it's hidden knowledge at all. It's not esoteric. But the terminology is not with with killer bees is possibly the Africanized bee or the um, the Africanized honeybee rather. The um, uh, um, the Brazilian honeybee is the 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 fusion of the the African and the European honeybee. So doing the research, doing 30 seconds worth of research is is not impossible on this stuff. To then in the swarm um, get so lazy with the screenplay that rather than saying even by tomorrow there'll be no more Africanized honeybees, of saying by tomorrow there'll be no more Africans, this is a really big difference in the writing, right? Yeah. Um, it's either so, gross incompetence or something even grosser. That's right. That's right. So yeah, um, yeah. Sorry, your your the movie wasn't that good. Uh, so one thing I, I I have to hear about is I had known about the uh, kind of racist beginnings of uh, zombie uh, cinema and the I guess inspiration from Haiti, uh, but you're saying it actually goes back farther than that into uh, British and Northern European ballads. Can you kind of take us through? that evolution to where they became, you know, Romero zombies, uh, uh, preaching left-wing ideas. 
Now, now for this, I need to draw in some um, later research that that I've done, including some quite contemporary stuff that I'm working cool. on at the moment. Um, and I, the, the basic points of that particular chapter still hold for whatever they're worth, but it's much more complicated, um, much more complex than I seem to have, have indicated originally. Um, there are different kinds of zombies in the movies. I, I'm talking specifically about the movie traditions here sure. now. Some are, are the Romero zombies um, and, and for lack of a better term, their children, the zombie movies that they've inspired. Um, then um, there are other kinds of used within zombie movies, but come from a tradition known as the reverence. What a reverent is, um, and reverence crop up in European uh, folklore, uh, European fo folk tales, as well as European ballads, are people back from the dead. They're ghosts, but they tend to have corporeal bodies. You know, they, they are not like a wispy white image out of the corner of your eye kind of ghost. They are, hey, that's Dan. You know, I'm looking at Dan's face. I can smell his breath. You know, like it, it's that kind of up close and personal kind of tradition. And those revenants often come back to complete a task or to right a wrong. They're, they're, they're ghosts with a purpose, as it were, um, or zombies with a purpose. And so we need to go well beyond the George Romero films, um, even in some of the earlier traditions. Sugar Hill, for example, just off the top of my head, which is a terrific zombie black exploitation film uh, from the early 70s. Um, and in this, um, Sugar Hill, the protagonist, uh, raises an army of zombies in order to avenge the death of her her lover um, and to, to get the mob off of her back. So here she is using zombies intentionally as revenants, as, as um, uh, her own resurrected army. And once she's accomplished that task, they go back to being dead. They don't just stumble off into a new dawn, as, as it were. Now, I wrote a piece uh, a couple of years ago, um, and David, I don't mind uh, getting you a copy of uh, a PDF of this, and and I don't know if you make this available to your listeners or whatnot. I can if you um, don't mind. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't mind, so long as proper credit is, is given. The, this piece that I'm talking about traced the different traditions in zombie movies. So there's the zombie slave, which comes from the Haitian uh, idea. There's the zombie revenant. Um, there's the apocalyptic zombies and these kinds of trying to group them into little families, into little like 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 folklorists study fairy tales into tale type clusters, uh, as as it were. Um, and so, what that, in answer to your question, what that has has revealed to me is the fact that some of the connections I was making when I wrote that particular chapter aren't actually the case. And in fact, I was mixing and matching different kinds of traditions, that there are the specific European tradition. Um, now, this ties in with what I was saying earlier about the fact that these stories, these folk stories are free to use because it's it's part of our, our, our intangible culture. Um, but not enough screenwriters are looking to folklore for ideas because 
flicking through, you know, when I was doing that, the zombie research that you're talking about, I was finding such wonderful nastiness in these folk stories that I've never seen in a film. There's a tradition from India. There's an individual motif that I found, which the description was simply corpse bites off person's nose. I want to see that in a movie, you know? And of course, I, I, I mentioned my my favorite uh Part of the entire book was the corpse froth. Uh, yep. That is that is so disgusting that I can't believe it hasn't been put into a film, or at least not one that I've seen. It's uh, well, I mean, you'll you'll certainly explain you it better. It. You uh, it. Uh, well, it's the uh, I, I, is it like a not a sorcerer, but the person who's conjuring the dead. The the corpse comes up, and there's this mix of muck and. I don't know, bodily fluids that's coming out on their face. And then the, uh, the conjurer has to, or I guess, lick it off of their face, yeah. uh, which is incredibly disgusting. And then they it, take blood from, was it their toe? Their toe. Yeah. Yeah. They take blood from their toe and inject it into the corpse's uh, tongue. Again, I, I just, I mean, that just sounds <laughs> that just sounds so gross to me that uh it, it does it, but but if we take a step back from that particular description what we've got here is um it's the the licking of the froth is a kind of intimacy and a recognition that the necromancer and his or her um resurrected corpse need to be intimate i don't necessarily mean in a sexual way but but you can't get much more up close and personal than licking off the corpse froth um and presumably by swallowing the the necromancer has taken part of the 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 zombied corpse into him or herself whereas you know it's, it's almost like actually it's like a a mother animal licking off goop off of their their kittens or, or puppies face right it becomes a very intimate act as for the toe and tongue um connection um i i sort of always have interpreted that as as sort of topping and tailing you know like it, it's it's almost a yin and yang it's opposites sure opposite parts of the body so it's from a symbolic perspective yes it is truly disgusting but it also kind of has a cultural logic to it Okay, that is the sweetest way I've ever heard a corpse froth story told. Uh, so congratulations on that. It's also the only corpse froth story I've ever heard. Uh, so so uh, apparently I am missing out. So since we've covered how uh, folklore and urban legends influences media, in what way does media then influence the legends being told? I, I assume you know there's a story in the book where they were afraid that oh once you put the legend on a movie, it'll stay forever like that and it'll never change. But are we seeing where the movies are now influencing the telling of the legends? Yeah, well, absolutely. That that the films, because of their accessibility and because of their permanence and. Um, by conservative, I don't mean that in a political sense. I mean conservative in the sense that um, my watching Candyman in 92 and my watching Candyman in 2020, is, the film itself has not necessarily changed. 
right? That's what I mean by conservative. Sure. Um, so it becomes a conservative text. It becomes um, uh, an easy, easily accessible text, but it does tend to standardize the telling and the details of a particular story. That's one of the problems. And I know as my, my PhD is actually in folklore studies, and I've been part of the International Society of Contemporary Legend Research since the mid-90s. This is a, a, an academic group that studies urban legends. In, in being a folklorist and in being interested in these kinds of stories, one of the things that has really struck me is how difficult it is to collect these stories because... Jan Brunvan's books are so well known, the movies are so well known that you start telling us, hey, have anybody heard stories, you know, the way we're supposed to collect folklore, stories similar to this going, oh, come on, don't be stupid. It's in that movie. Oh, yeah, I've heard that. It's in that film. I had an experience, um, this was quite a few years ago with the movie The Ring. Uh, sorry, Ringu, the, the original Japanese version. Because that uses an urban legend as its its um, initial what would you, what would you call it? That's what gets the, the narrative rolling, uh, is the urban legend about the haunted videotape. I arranged at the university I was teaching at, it wasn't Worcester, it was another university. Um, they had an Asia-Pacific student society at this university, um, made up of, of East Asian uh, students, obviously. Anyway, I arranged at uh, one of the cinemas a screening of Ringu um, specifically for them. But before the film, as I was sort of introducing it and thanking everybody for coming, I wanted to sort of see, have any of you guys heard this story before? Have you, you know, and everybody had heard the story before about the haunted videotape where, you know, you watch these strange images and then um, uh, you get the phone call and seven days later you die from from fear. Everybody was familiar with that particular story. Great. Can you give me details? And they all stared at me blankly going, well, it's in the movie we're about to watch. So the movie was what gave us that particular story. This is not something which ever entered oral circulation, never entered folklore, as, as it were. This is the, the story that's at the basis of Ringu. Although it is worth mentioning, and I need to explore this in more detail, I think. One of the things that really surprised me with the Slenderman movie, um, other than just this really is one of the worst films I've ever seen, <laughs> is it is it really felt like somebody had taken a reboot of The Ring and changed Sadako or, or Samara in the American version and replaced it with Slendy. Like, like, like it's, this was not a Slenderman narrative. This was much more a Sadako Samara narrative or a variation on it um, than it was, had anything to do with Slenderman. Huh. Oh, I, 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 can't believe you thought that deep about that movie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't get out much. What can I say? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm sure it was a great film. Um, so it, it no, was not. It was not. No. So uh, with the modern culture, uh, computers, that sort of thing, uh, how do we see folklore changing? New cha You mentioned Slender Man. Uh, Momo is another one that people, yeah. there are people when I was researching to speak with you, I was looking for, you know, books on this type of thing. And there are books who say, no, you don't understand. Slender, Slender Man is real. Um, that, uh, like, like Puka in the Puka lives story that, uh, Laurel Topol is in, 
that the be- belief in the character has given the entity actual life and that there now is a slender man out there and it to me that's strange because we can actually track to where slender man was created so yeah. uh can you uh is, is that something that you'll find happening uh, beyond just slender man well, Slenderman's a really good example, and that's that's where I have some a little bit of knowledge about this. And in this, unfortunately, I am at odds with not just colleagues in this field, but very close personal friends of mine um, who I just think have got Slenderman wrong. Um, and I question this is controversial. Um, I question the truthfulness of anyone who says they believe in Slenderman. Um, and I think it is motivated by a wanting to believe than actual belief itself. I want to be frightened by, by Slender Man. Therefore, I will work myself up into this terror frenzy. Um, but that has to happen because there's nothing to believe. Uh, the, uh, my problem with Slender Man isn't so much with Slenderman himself um, or with the narratives uh, because it was always created as a, a fictional entity. Nobody ever believed it. Um, I did a little bit of research on this um, and there's a very good book that this research uh, appears in um, not just my chapter, other people's chapters are also quite excellent um, or are excellent. My, but but especially yours, especially yours. No, 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 no. no. I, I really <laughs> was not. That was not what I, I was. No, I know. I, I got you. As I did a little bit of a, an informal survey um, uh, amongst two particular groups, my son was um, mid-teens at that time. I think he was 14 or 15 years old, um, and my undergraduate students, uh, so sort of between 18 and 21 years of age. Um, so with these two groups, um, my students didn't respond to the survey, but my son was nice enough to really put pressure on all of his friends to fill it out. So I've got this really great little sample um, uh, of, of 14, 15 year olds uh, from a few years ago. And one of the best responses that I got, this was of course all anonymized. And um, when I was going through the results, my son knew exactly who, who said this particular comment. And as soon as he said that I could hear this, this kid's voice very much in the comment in my question, do you believe in Slender Man? The response was, no, I'm not six. Right. You know? Or schizophrenic, <laughs> like the one girl that stabbed her friend. Exactly. Yeah. And what got miss, what got gets conveniently left out about the um, Washuka County um, attempted murder case of those of those girls is that it wasn't just Slender Man who told her to do this. She was also doing it to appease Voldemort. Um, and I think there was another pop culture um, baddie that she was trying to appease. So everybody focuses on the Slender Man, but nobody's talking about banning Harry Potter. Right. And I think that her history was that she had always heard a voice and that what that voice was changed through pro- probably whatever yeah. she was exposed to. And then as far as Momo, people are just convinced themselves of <laughs> of ridiculousness. <laughs> I, I think I think it, the the question needs to be asked. There needs to be a secondary, more precise question there. Not for you, but for those people investigating Momo or Slenderman, and that is, who believes 
And what specifically do they believe? So what I felt with Slender Man, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll mention Momo in, in just a moment, but with Slender Man, I think what perpetuates the Slender Man stories is not fear of Slender Man, but fear of what other people might think about Slender Man. So it's not that I'm scared. I'm scared of what the idiots next door are thinking about this. Right. Um, so give, let me give you an example of Momo. My daughter, um, who's 12 now, so when Momo was circulating, she was 10 or 11, I think. Um, and from her primary school, we got a letter um, and emails from the school warning us as parents not to talk about Momo. Um, not to talk about um, this stuff in front of kids because the kids were getting really freaked out by these stories. And when I asked my daughter about this, she sort of gave me that, well, duh, look, you know, that only a 10-year-old can give you and said, nobody believes this. We all just like freaking each other out. It's their parents right. who get worried. The kids are having fun with it. You know, it's the parents go, oh, 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 we, can, we, we can't be talking about, about Momo. Of course you need to talk about Momo because even my, my 10-year-old at the time, um, you know, recognized it as nonsense. One more thing before uh, before I let you go. Uh, I mentioned that uh, how disgusting and wonderful in a horror movie The Corpse Froth would be. Uh, and you mentioned earlier that we really don't pluck enough out of the old urban legends and stuff for our movies because it's free. You don't have to pay for rights for this stuff. You can They're literally just great ideas from the past that you can use in your films. Is there a certain folklore monster or a legend tale that you would want in a movie and uh, why? I guess pitch me the film or the scene. Oh, gosh. No, I, I'm sure most of my the, – the monsters I love have been very well well trodden. So things like Jack the Ripper, Chupacabra, uh, Aliens. Alien. I guess maybe you know I can't get enough alien abduction narratives as I'm absolutely fascinated with that stuff. Also, stories about the devil. You know, um, I, I like the theologically oriented stories, and all of these areas are very well covered cinematically. Um, so I don't know how to answer that that particular uh, question. Yeah. yeah. One thing, one thing I don't think is uh, very well covered, and I mean, you're probably much more knowledgeable about this than I am, but here we get a lot of American folklores, Christian religions, or, or Catholic, you know, it's the, the exact same exorcism rites and stuff like that. We very rarely get anything from other cultures that aren't catering to a predominantly white Christian market. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think it would be really cool to kind of explore some other faith traditions and say, hey, maybe there's other beliefs. I think uh, there was one I saw recently had, or a few years ago, had a Dybbuk box or something like that, which is yep. a little bit different, but I want more variety. I think uh, the Curse of La Llorona was from a different was you know from a different culture than what I'm right. used to. Yeah. Sure. And and so um, even though you know, I mean, the movie had some good parts and bad parts. I was at least appreciative of, all oh, right, they're bringing in new stuff that other cultures have experienced that I haven't. Two, yeah, two, two, two points on, on that. One is there's an absolutely amazing uh, Hindi horror film called Tumbad, T-U-M-B-A-D. 
um, which really works within the context of Hindu mythology and 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 Hindu demons. It's an absolutely wonderful film uh, that I would recommend people see. Um, the other point is that it, it, this research is a tad in the uh, early stages, I guess, to, to go into too much detail. But one of the things that I am currently researching is Jewish horror films and Jewish horror narratives. Um, not just Dybbuk's, but Golem's. Um, uh, and there's a, a terrific Polish film from a couple of years ago called Demon, which is a fascinating variation on the Dybbuk story, way better than The Possession, which is, I think, the one you were mentioning, the Dybbuk. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was – look, I'm trying to forget that whole era of horror where every January we got a really crappy film. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm trying to get a, I'm trying to block that whole era out of my mind, but uh, yes, the possession I think it was. Yeah, yeah. So, so, um, so yeah, Jewish horror films is is a particular interest of my, of mine. So, well, uh, to twist it maybe a little bit, who would win in a fight between uh, Chupacabra, uh, Bigfoot, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, the Jersey Devil, uh, probably the Jersey Devil, right? No, I'd say Chupacabra. He's a fast little man, you know, fast little creature. Huh. And you know, Bigfoot would, you know, Sasquatch would turn around wanting to give sort of a, a slammer punch downward, and already the Chupacabra would um, nod through his, his Achilles tendon. See? Uh, and and that's why we turn to a guy with knowledge, because he he understands <laughs> – he understands the the – fighting style of mythical monsters and uh and see, the thing, thing about the jersey the jersey devil and this is just typical of people i know from jersey is you know he'd, he'd be sitting in a little uh you know outdoor sun chair with a can of beer saying no no i'll just watch you guys i'll, I'll watch <laughs> well uh my Forget favorite my favorite mythological creature is Michael Coven. Uh, <laughs> and I really, really, really appreciate you joining me. Uh, thank you so much. My pleasure. And that is the show. Once again, I'd like to thank my guests, Laurel Topol and Dr. Michael Coven. And thank you for listening. Uh, feel free to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. And remember, like any great franchise, your story isn't over yet.